Uh, we've been teaching a series on the doctrine of confession, and we want to continue there. Uh, I think I want to stop off and hit something else just briefly. Go to Ezekiel chapter 14. Let me help us receive from the Word of God by teaching us how to do it and avoid things that hurt us. Because uh, all, all the little tips and tricks can help us. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you get anything out of it. Now, it's one thing to go to a church and there's nothing being given. And you walk away from there and say, I got nothing out of that. I've been in a lot of those services. But around here, and not that we're perfect, we miss God uh, from time to time. We try to uh, take inventory and analyze how we did it so we don't do it again. But around here, we're pretty prayed up. We're pretty studied up. We're pretty led by the Holy Spirit. So that if you get nothing out of service, probably the odds are it's your fault, not whoever's standing behind the pulpit, be me, a guest minister, or whoever. You know, personalities aside, we all have our favorite guest ministers. If I'm not your favorite, like, main pastor, I don't know what to tell you, because we don't have an associate. I don't believe in associate pastors. I just don't, because it brings confusion to the flock. I believe one shepherd, one flock. One flock, one shepherd. If, if we had associates, you could probably split the camp, and that's typically what happens with associates. Anyway, so any tip or trick we can give you to help you get the most out of the preaching of God's Word, the better. You know, uh, even when the Lord Jesus Christ taught and spoke, like the book of Acts, I'm thinking his final sermon face to face, it says, and why, why he said these things and was received in the heavens, some marveled and some doubted. Like even those that were gathered to the ascension of Christ on the Mount of Olives were split. Some marveled and said, wow, wow, and others doubted. Day of Pentecost, just a few days later, you know, there were those that marveled and those that said, these guys are drunk morons. But yet the same word is going forth, the same Holy Spirit is present. So if we can give you any tip or trick uh, to make the best out of your services, that's probably a good thing. I was just reading yesterday uh, about the new space tourism, how, you know, Blue Horizon is sending people up. They've done like 20 uh, public commercial launches where you go up into space 62 miles and I guess you hang out for a couple minutes and then you got to come back down. Kind of like that thing at Dollywood, but a lot higher. Huh? But they said uh, when, when you, I don't know, it's I think a, a quarter million dollars to go right up into space for a couple minutes and come back. So it's kind of a hoity-toity thing. I mean, some of you won't get to do it. So. <laughs> I won't get to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm pretty, pretty good here. But they said the morning of the launch, they, Blue Horizon puts this massive breakfast out because uh, NASA research says when you go to weightlessness, it's good to have a full stomach. But they don't serve coffee or orange juice because they're diuretics and because of the acid, and that would reverse <laughs> the benefit of a full stomach. So they require all those folks that go up to have a, a good-sized breakfast because they do better in weightlessness, and that's what all the research shows. So I thought, well, any tip or trick to enjoy your quarter-million-dollar ride is much appreciated. Otherwise, I don't want to spend a quarter-million dollars to puke in weightlessness. And I'm sure they have something to remedy that or ca catch it, or other than that, it just looks like somebody spilled soup when you crash back to <laughs> planet Earth. We don't want those capsules smelling sour. So anything we can give you to help you not waste your time or mine or God's is beneficial. So the thing I was praying about just there, I hit upon it, it's going to be helpful that when you come to church, you pull on the presence of God. And you say, Lord, I need an answer today. But that has to be held loosely in tension with not being consumed with whatever you're facing. Because we have all in this church demonstrated to come to church, the word of God be taught, and we got nothing out of it. Because we were just so consumed of whatever we were facing. Now, there might be an appropriate time. Maybe you lost a loved one, or maybe you just got word that uh, you're going to have to have chemotherapy. There, there are certain things that hit you and just knock you down. And, and if you come to a church, we expect you probably not to really be here that service because you're still processing all these emotions. But a mature person who's been through enough battles knows how to reallocate their heart and say, bless God. I don't care what's being taught this morning, whether it's the blood of Jesus, whether it's Paul's prison captivity, or whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, I'm getting something out of this for the chemotherapy or for the passing of mama. There's something in this message for me. That, that is a mature Christian. Not a lot of folks get that. I, I don't like the critical spirit that sits there and says, well, I heard this before, or you know what, I ain't never heard it taught that way. That, that, that's pretty low 
that's pretty low income Christianity, low, low, not income, low IQ Christianity. I'm like, well, how about you get up there and teach us what you want? Let's, let's see how you do for an hour. <laughs> You'd fail. Anyway, Ezekiel 14. Uh, this is Ezekiel prophesying from captivity. And there are three times the elders of Israel come and present themselves before the Lord in the presence of Ezekiel. And what they're doing is they're coming to Ezekiel and they're saying, tell us what the word of the Lord has to say. Tell us what God is saying. Three times this same scenario plays out in the book of Ezekiel. And every time the Lord basically says the same thing. Verse 1, then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. So this is like a church service. The elders would be about 70. That's the eldership of Israel. They're coming and they're sitting at the feet of the prophet. So we have a church service. And they're there to know what's God saying to us, prophet. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, oh, you know, when people assemble and they want to hear from God, God will show up and speak to the prophet. If the people don't show up, God's not going to speak to the prophet. So they come claiming they want a word, and that would help us to receive from whoever the minister is, be it me, a guest, or one of our in-house ministers who are all very apt. If you come wanting to hear from God, God will speak to that minister, the sermon to prepare, the prophecy to deliver, and the message, etc., even the song selection. So here's what the word of the Lord says unto these men who claim they want to hear from God. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and have put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? They come and they say they want to hear from heaven, but all they're here doing is worshiping the problem in their heart. So now our idolatry is not like their idolatry. Their idolatry are literally idols. That's why they're in captivity. Even the elders. But what God is saying is here, why, why have you come to inquire of me when you don't really want to hear what I have to say? And so I, I say this to help us. When we come to church, we, any given service, we're dealing with something. That's life whether our marriage is under attack or our health is under attack or our kids are acting up or layoffs might be coming or we're going to have to do the layoffs or the class got canceled and I got to wait two more semesters to take it. There's always something battling for our focus. And I want us to be able to come to church and be able to lay that aside, to be able to hear clearly what God is saying. If we're not able to do that, we, we have the ability to bring that into a service and not hear from God at all. God knows what we're facing. He's not a fool. He knows exactly what was bothering us Thursday and Friday and Saturday. He knows what was bothering us this morning when we got up. And what we've got to do is be mature enough to say, Lord, you know what I'm facing, but I'm coming to the house of God to hear what you have to say. Lord, I could use an answer on that. But if you want to teach me about eating grass like Nebuchadnezzar, then I'll learn about eating grass like Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to teach me about Hezekiah, or if you want to teach me about Jephthah, Teach me, Lord, but you know I need to an answer on that, but I'm going to believe because you're God and the Holy Ghost can do anything he wants to do with the word that whatever the message is, is going to minister to me. But what we often do, and we got to catch ourselves when we do it, is we come to church with this problem just right here in our face, and we're just consumed of it. We just wring our hands over it over and 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 over, and over again so that we don't even hear what's being said, not by the preacher or by the Holy Spirit. And we've got to be more mature than that. We've got to be able to come to the house of God and say, Lord, I'm going to worship. I'm leaving my troubles at your altar. As the Bible commands us, let us cast all of our cares over on him. When? As soon as you can feel their burden. Uh, sometimes I think we want to shoulder the burden to show how tough we are. It's not a strongman competition where we want to see how many burdens can I shoulder and this is just my lot in life. No, the Lord says cast it over on him for he cares for you. If you come to church and you won't cast those cares over, you're not going to be able to participate in worship effectively. You're not going to be able to then sit down and receive from the Word of God effectively. And sometimes, I don't say it's here, but I have observed people, they want to wear their burden as a badge of pride. You don't know what I'm going through. Well, no, I don't, but I know who can fix it. You just don't understand. Well, you know, that's what you've been saying for 16 months now. Uh, why don't you try to educate me? Because I'm a pretty smart fellow. I can, I can begin to understand anything. How about, well, I don't know how to explain it. Try using words. Simple, building to massive, larger ones. I probably have heard something that you're going to tell me before because I'm not new. 
But if we're not careful, we make whatever it is into an idol. It would be like the equivalent, your marriage is under attack, but because you can't set that aside and focus on King Jesus, I could teach on a marriage sermon. I could teach a marriage lesson and you not get anything out of it for your marriage because you're so consumed of the marriage and then make a beeline for me after service. Pastor, could you pray for our marriage? I just taught you on how to fix your marriage for an hour and 10 minutes. My Sunday morning sermons are not short. But if we're not careful, we don't hear anything that's said at all. <laughs> and what happens is it frustrates the Lord. So the Lord asked the son of, uh, son of man, uh, Ezekiel, why are these guys here? They're not interested in me. They're interested in their struggle. They're interested in their idol. We need to make sure that's not us. Yes, we come with problems. Yes, we come to the house of God with them. And that's great. That's where we should bring them and then leave them at the altar. We should lift our hands and say, Lord, you know what I'm going through, but I'm going to give you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Again, I will give you the other ditch or the other balance is that there is probably appropriate time. You're mourning the loss of a loved one or you just found out some horrible news on the way to church. I understand that's a new blow. It just hits you. You're still kind of gathering your wits, but anything newer or older than this morning, you should pretty much have compartmentalized and be able to deal with it when you come to the house of God so you can worship your God. Begin to, even Sarah excuse me, Hannah in the book of Samuel, even she's in the house of God doing her best to cry out to her God. She's doing her best to worship him and praise him. And if we're not careful, we can come to church and get absolutely nothing out of church. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians do that. It's like going to the gym and making no gains or losses. You should gain what you want to gain and lose what you want to lose. And it's possible to come to church and just gain more burdens and never lose any and lose strength and never gain any. Amen. All right. So I want to give that to you as an encouragement, maybe a challenge, maybe a check yourself. We've had, we've had sermons on how to defeat stress and nobody pay attention and come to me after service and say, pastor, I need you to pray for me. I need peace. I just taught on how to defeat stress. Uh, but you were so consumed of it, you couldn't see. You just zoned out. We've all been there where we zone out and don't hear what's being said. I'm mindful of uh, a vision Brother Hagen had years ago where basically the Lord Jesus was speaking to him and a demon manifested in front of the Lord Jesus and was putting out this cloud and the demon was going yakety-yak, yakety-yak, yakety-yak. And the whole time the Lord Jesus is talking. And the, the Brother Hagin said in this vision dream he was having, uh, the Lord was trying to teach him some stuff. Uh, he kept thinking, I wish the Lord would tell that demon to shut up so I could hear what, he has to, what the Lord has to say. Yakety-yak, yakety-yak. And finally, after several minutes, uh, Brother Hagin says, devil, shut up. Get out of my way. I'm trying to hear what the Lord has to say. And the demon disappeared. And in this dream Brother Hagin said, Lord, why didn't you tell that demon to shut up? And Brother Hagin said, that, or the Lord told Brother Hagin, that's your responsibility. Jesus just kept talking, just like the preacher just keeps preaching. So your, your turmoil, that's your responsibility. I'm doing my responsibility. So like, let's take a little step over and then we'll get to my notes, hopefully, if, if you'll be happy and say amen and catch what I'm saying. We're living in this current cultural phenomenon where people exalt their triggers. Well, you, you need to understand, I don't diminish triggers. We have people that have true triggers, like military vets. That's a true trigger. Uh, our family in Indiana, uh, I think it's some distant cousins, were, were in a horrific house fire and one of the cousins was killed, the little children. And the other one, or the mama was, the two kids had severe burns. Um, the kids were okay. They had a lot of skin grafts. The firefighter that rescued those kids and brought them out with skin falling off of them, that's a real trigger. All right. Everything at college? But here's my point. Your triggers are your responsibility. I'm doing my job. I, unless you wear like this shirt 
that says, uh, attention, dear human, I am this touchy, needy, fretful, resentful, offensive, and weak, and you just label all your triggers. I, I'm taught to like not judge anybody, right? So I just look at you and I assume you're all hungry for God and can't be offended by the word. Amen. So just so you know, uh, your triggers are your responsibility, so deal with them. Because if you won't, I know I can't. So I would hate for you to like be a miserable human being, assuming the rest of us can read your mind and your weirdness. So unless you're willing to have a shirt made that you wear everywhere that says, please, almost like a um, therapy dog, which, you know, they have a therapy dog wears a vest that says therapy dog, don't touch. That's a real therapy dog. Unless you're willing to wear like a therapy vest that signals to us everything that we need to be like tiptoe around you in your life about, grow up and deal with it. All right. I'm doing my job. Your job is to come and sit under me while I do my job. And trust that I hear from God enough to help you. Amen. Because we are capable of raising up great Christians. We've demonstrated it. So if others are being able to raise up under this ministry and you can't, it's not my fault. That looks like it's your problem. Because if people are flourishing here, but you're not, can't be the conditions here. It's got to be all on your part. All right. So how about you denounce your triggers unless you want to be, wasn't that the Lone Ranger's horse? Unless you're the Lone Ranger... You don't get triggers. I have a Bible verse for you that defeats triggers. Be not dismayed by their faces. That means don't be triggered. How about take no thought? Defeat your triggers. I don't know. Something happened in our nation. We went really dumb. We, we thought we could excuse ourselves from the responsibilities of God by this little phenomenon called triggers. And I just don't understand that. <laughs> Triggers. So anyway, let's go back now to our doctrine of confession. So let us begin. Uh, where do we want to start? Let's go to Numbers 30. We're going to start there here in a little bit. We've been teaching on this doctrine of confession for a while. To review, I, I'm, a, I'm a Brother Haganite. I'm a Lester Summerall graduate. And I believe in the word of faith doctrine as it was taught in the 50s and 60s, not the thing it has become today, which is an abomination. Uh, if I can simply say, for those of you who maybe are word of faith haters, and I would tell you you're probably just ignorant of the history of it or the doctrine of it, and you probably just stay on Christian blogs so that never go very deep into what the doctrine really is. The word of faith doctrine originated by saying, this is very simple, God's word is true. Even the Talmud and the sages taught that under Judaism. God's word is true. The word of faith doctrine says God's word is the blueprint for life. Okay, that's what the sages and the rabbis taught. God's promises are for us. That's what the rabbis and the sages taught. So really, the, the word of faith folks who really what they did is they rekindled a doctrine that Jesus Christ taught in his day, which was God's word is true. His promises are, this sounds very Pauline, so don't judge me, yes and amen. All of God's promises are yes and amen. We should probably throw that song out because that's word of faith. So the word of faith doctrine as it was originally taught goes something like this. If God's word is true and God is not a man that he should lie, then anything he promised me I could have, I can have. I just must contend for it like the book of Jude and the book of Corinthians teaches. That's the word of faith doctrine. The Bible says that we can pray, we can believe, we can receive all things by faith. All right, that's simple word of faith doctrine. So that became the word of faith doctrine, and then with it came the, the doctrine of confession, which was taught to the body of Christ so that they didn't spend all these hours in prayer believing for a promise 
whether it was healing or provision or restoration of a prodigal or favor or whatever it might be, spend all these hours in prayer receiving something from God, then get out of their prayer closet and go and shoot themselves in their foot with something dumb like, well, I just don't think it's working. They never favor me. I always get sick. Oh, they're going to lay me off. I just know it. And in a sense, you can have what you say according to Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 11, and it violates Hebrews where it says, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. So that became the modern confession doctrine. But what we've done in the last five or six weeks is go back and look at the doctrine of confession beginning in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the the first five books of the Bible. And so we saw that the first place words began to be important was when we were to confess our sins. And that doctrine still holds true to today, regardless of what that heretic Joseph Prince says. Now, how do we know Joseph Prince is a heretic? because he teaches us not to read the red letters. That makes you a heretic. When he teaches that 1 John is not for today and that we don't need to confess our sins, that makes you a heretic. When he teaches not to do any of the do's and don'ts of the New Testament, that makes you a heretic. Pretty simple. He's right there with Joseph Smith, who undermined the scriptures to write the Book of Mormon. Unfortunately, Joseph Prince used to be a son in the faith to Lester Sumrall and Brother Hagen. But he started hearing bells chime a couple years ago, and the bells chiming indicated to him when this doctrine was real. So (laughs) there's a -a ding-a-ling joke in there somewhere. (laughs) When supernatural bells ringing in the Orient signal real real doctrine, you got a demon. I... I mean, I'm educated, but I'm a pretty simple fellow. I, I haven't even mastered these 66 books yet. I don't need some bell ringing in my head. And that happened once when I got kicked. That made a bell ring in my head. But I didn't come up with any new doctrine. I'm like, well, the doctrine was don't get kicked in the head again. <laughs> pretty simple. So coming back, we have this doctrine where the first thing the Bible teaches us to confess is our sin. That holds through to the New Testament. The Bible says to confess your faults one to another that you might be healed. A lot of healing is tied to the confession of sin. Now, what we see after the ark, and I've taught this many times, it's worth repeating again, before, excuse me, before the fall, not the ark, before the fall, whatever man called it, that's what it was. After the fall, God wanted to see if we would call it what God called it. So one of the reasons we confess sin is so that we can demonstrate to the Lord, I'm still in agreement with you, Lord. I want to be on your side. Lord, I want to be like you. If we don't confess sin, we tell the Lord, you're a fool for calling that sin. Why would I denounce something that I don't think is sin? We confess sin to say, Lord, I know I committed it, but it's still what you called it, which is sin and wicked and evil and ugly and disgusting. And I'm ashamed that I did it, though I did enjoy it in the moment. But forgive me, Lord. That keeps us right with God. If we can't confess sin, what we're saying is, Lord, we have something better than you. Confession is all about saying what God says in every area of life. That's the doctrine of confession. So the first thing we saw is we confess our sin. Then we saw how there's a doctrine of confessing testimony. And we are all to do it every service. We're, uh, as uh, Deuteronomy 26 teaches us that we're to make a confession before the high priest, or we'd say the, the Lord Jesus and say, a Syrian ready to die was my father. Talk about where you came from and don't forget where you came from and hope to God he takes you further than when you came from. Don't peek at your born again experience. Go further for Christ. Then there's this doctrine. We looked at the last two uh, lessons on oaths and vows. You swear an oath to men, but you vow a vow to the Lord. Now, this one's critical because the Bible tells us in Numbers 30 that when we do this, when we swear an oath to man or vow a vow to God, we bind our soul and we can't break it. Now, that doesn't stop us from breaking it, but the doctrine and the conviction ought to be, I don't break it. I don't break my vow to God, and I don't break my oath. Now, semantical arguments aside, I know we call them wedding vows, but what it is is an oath. When you swear an oath, that's technically called a covenant. We know nothing about covenants in our generation. We just, we don't know anything about it. We talk about the new covenant, we talk about the old covenant, but we don't understand the obligation and the binding of your life. We have been taught for 246 years that we're free, we're independent, and who are you to tell me what to do? And you know what? You can't make me do anything, by the way. So if I made a covenant with you or made a commitment to you and it gets in my way of pleasure, I'm going to break my covenant with you and go with somebody over here to do what I want to do. That's the modern culture, and we have to denounce that and change it through doctrinal teaching. 
we have to understand that you cannot separate a man or woman from their word. This used to be important to civilization, and in some cultures it still is, but the American church, the American people, no. Our words aren't important to us. And now this is important or critical because if we don't trust our word, we won't trust God's word. And uh, Brother Hagin was the one that pointed out a lot of us don't have faith in God's word because we don't have faith in our own word. If you as a human being would bend over backwards to bring your word to pass, you would know how much it was important to God to bring his word to pass. And that's why it becomes important for us to be, doctrine aside, just simply men and women of our word. We ought to be known as men and women of our word. This is something we challenged last week that we need to begin to ask the Lord to remind us of when we make a covenant, when we make a promise, when we extend our word and we tell somebody we're going to do something. And I made the challenge last week. Some of us are going to have to start to dry up our commitments because we're overcommitted. And some of us who've never been committed in our life are going to have to begin to come out of self-protection and begin to step out and make some commitments. If you can keep your commitments, you'll begin to build a, a, a momentum and a velocity and a weight in life. You, you'll know within yourself, I, if I said it, I'm going to do it. Some people don't even have that thought about themselves because they know they don't ever do anything they say. But you have to know within yourself, if I gave my word, I'm going to do it. If I said it, it's as good as gold. In fact, we have those expressions, you can take his word to the bank. That's a reference to the old banknotes. Or we came up, his word's as good as gold. We don't have those expressions anymore because we don't even know what that means. What we have to get back to is biblical doctrine on commitments and keeping our words. That's why we've spent two weeks, we're going to be a little bit more this week, on vows and oaths. So we said you vow a vow to God, which is, oh God, if you'll deliver me, I'll serve you. I think every one of us has made that kind of vow, and that's okay. I tell the Lord, Lord, if you bring me the money, I'll do it. Lord, if you anoint me, I'll do it. Lord, if you grace me, I'll, I'll tackle the project. It's an if-then. Lord, if, then I'll do it. If this, then I'll do it. And he always keeps his end of the vow. We often don't because we just want out of the pinch. At some point in your Christian maturity, your vows have to go from, oh, Lord, deliver me from my mess again, to, all right, Lord, if you'll bring me the people, I'll take the next step. It has to be from one of, Lord, I vow, I vow to get out of my mess, to, Lord, I vow, I vow to advance your kingdom. Amen. Most Christians, I believe, will live and die in the, oh, Lord, get me out of this. How many times does he have to get you out of the same miry clay? We ought to get to a place where our vows advance the kingdom for his sake and our cost. Lord, if you'll bring me more hours in the day, I'll stay up longer for you. Lord, if you'll give me more strength, I'll go further for you. Lord, if you'll give me more money, I'll fund more missionaries for you. Lord, if this, then I'll do that for you. Not if you do this for me. When you're immature and carnal, you make all sorts of rash vows to get yourself straight. But at some point, you begin to move the needle and you mature to where you don't live for you anymore. It's all about what can I do to build the kingdom. So that's vows. But then we have this oaths, swearing oaths, and that is where your word is no longer any good, so you have to now swear by the greater. And that's what Galatians and Hebrews tells us, that they have to swear by the greater one. So God, because he could swear by no greater than, him, uh, than himself, swore by himself to Abraham. And Israel was commanded that you shall swear by my name because he didn't want them swearing by Balaam or Asherah or any of these other gods. But the Lord Jesus comes along in Matthew 5, and James reiterates it in James chapter 5, and says, don't swear anymore. And we're not talking about cussing. Let's reiterate this again, because this is so new to all of us, but this is simple Bible doctrine. Don't swear anymore. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. As I said, and I've said it many times, in our vernacular, we say, do you mean it? Do you mean it, mean it? That's the equivalent of swearing, oaths, not swearing like cussing. And cussing ain't cursing. Do you mean it, mean it? Promise me, promise, promise. This is usually what somebody has to say in a relationship when they've just been a liar so many times. Cross your heart. That's what we did as kids. Hope to die. Stick a needle in your eye. Now you've gone from swearing to swearing and cursing. 
And I don't think we realized how biblical we were being. Cross my heart. That's a swear. I'm swearing an oath. Hope to die. That's invoking a curse upon me. And I don't know whether they stick the needle in the eye before or after you die. Or maybe when they stick the needle in the eye, you wish they were dead or you wish you were dead. But we didn't realize that even as that childhood little word game we play, we were being very biblical. We were swearing an oath and invoking a curse, all because we couldn't be trusted. Now, here's something else we have to understand. If I don't trust you, that's your fault. If you don't trust me, that's my fault. We control how much people trust us. Totally up to us. Even as far back as the Exodus, God understood people lie. One of the first 10 of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not lie or perjure. But he says there that he gives them permission to swear by his name. But uh, the fourth commandment is thou shalt not use my name in vain. That was not a reference to Americans saying GD or JC. That's not taking the Lord's name in vain according to the context. Now today, yes, I would tell you, if you use the, the Lord's name as a swear word or a cuss word, which are both implications of swearing and cursing, which is not what we're talking about, so hopefully you're following all the evolution of words here. I would tell you that to use the Lord's name as a swear word or a filthy communication is to take his name in vain. But what you see with Exodus chapter 20 is he was giving them permission to swear oaths by his name, but he said, don't do it in vain. When you take the Lord's name in vain, that by extension becomes blasphemy. The word blasphemy means to screw holes or to perforate, to, to render void. So the question is, how do we principalize this to us today? It's very simple. When folks use their Christianity as a reason to do business. You can trust me, brother. I'm a Christian. Oh, I would never do that. I'm a Christian. That's blasphemy. You're invoking the Lord's name so people will trust you more. Oh, you can trust them. They're a good Christian business owner. I don't really trust Christian business owners. In my experience in the world, you'd be better off just shutting up about your Christianity. Take the Jesus fish off your billboard. Take it off your work trucks because now you're under extra scrutiny and you're going to mess up a little bit anyway. Why invoke it? That's why I, as a preacher, don't have a clergy sticker anywhere on my car because I'm going to cut somebody off inevitably and they're going to say, dumb preacher. And I'm going to say, you dumb hooligan. We're going to curse each other. <laughs> Let me show you a, a passage here as we're talking. I know I've got your numbers. Uh, go to Leviticus chapter 24. I want, us, I, I want to keep reiterating this about keeping our word, keeping our word. Leviticus chapter 24. If you get nothing else out of this teaching today concerning the doctrine of confession, let it be that when you and I speak words, we're accountable. Mama lied to us. We were taught sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Maybe not somebody else's words unless you got that trigger sweatshirt on. <laughs> How pathetic is it that people fall apart over a word from a fool? You only are affected where you put faith. Really pretty pathetic, especially when we're supposed to be born again. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Maybe not your words, but my words can hurt me. Because if I give my word and I don't bring it to pass, I'm a liar. It hurts my testimony. If I make a promise and I break it, now I'm an I'm a, a oath breaker. I'm a truce breaker. I'm a promise breaker. We don't want to be that. We need to make sure that when we give our word, we keep it. If you have to write it down, if you have to put it in your phone, so be it. If you have to get back with somebody, make sure you keep your word about getting back with somebody before you make the bigger promise to them. We are too flippant with the words of our mouth, and this is a reason why our prayers are so weak and why it takes so much time in prayer and fasting to move God any bit at all or to rebuke a devil any bit at all because our words don't move anything in our life day to day. We've got to redeem it. I said last week, we're spending words that are valued at the Zim dollar. Our words have been so devalued through lying inflation or the inflation of lying, that it now takes billions of words to purchase what one word used to. 
A couple weeks ago when I was in Uganda, my wife taught on Jacob's blessing, excuse me, Isaac's blessing over Jacob, and he could not retract it because his words had power. He understood this. He scratched around and said, I got nothing to bless you with, son. There's nothing left because he was spoken. He had declared it, and if he took it back, it would have meant nothing in the first place. We, we would just say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Nowadays, we don't even say, I didn't mean that. We just say, oh, get over it. Or, or I've even heard people say, you, you believe me? What a sorrowful person when they know their reputation is that of liar. Leviticus 24, coming back to swearing and oaths and cursing and blasphemy, because all of this is done with our mouth. Leviticus 24, verse 10, And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. So we have a, what we would call a, a half-breed, which is a crass term, but he's half Israelite, half Egyptian. So his dad's an Egyptian. He's part of the mixed multitude that came out with Egypt. So that's to say nothing else except that God's going to judge him partially. He gets in a fight with an Israelite. We're just telling who the lineage is, who's dealing. They get in a fight. They strive in the camp. All right? Verse 11. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So there's two ways to look at what that means. Blaspheme means he took the Lord's name in vain and cursed. So there's two two ways to interpret this. He either blasphemed the Lord's name by cursing the Israelite in this fighting, like uh, if they're fighting, this gets into more law, uh, spiritual jurisprudence from the Old Testament, what they're fighting and they're fighting over something. So the man is invoking an oath saying, I swear to you, I didn't do it. So they're fighting over something. He's having to defend himself and he's invoking the Lord's name saying, I didn't do this. So one of the two interpretations here is he said, I swear I didn't do this. Uh, let me die if I did. So he's swearing and invoking a curse. But as the story can be interpreted, he's lying and that makes it blasphemy. So he's saying, I swear to God, I did not do this. And if I did, let me die. Or he has blasphemed God by invoking a curse upon his neighbor which is forbidden. You don't curse your neighbor. Either way, he says, in the name of Jehovah, I curse you because they're fighting. Either way, he's used his words and what befalls next is the death penalty. The story's included only only one example to demonstrate how serious these sins of our mouths are. We just say, I didn't mean it. Oh, you you know, I was just kidding, right? Uh, (laughs) Oh, Just get over it. There's a serious issue here. They brought him unto Moses. That is, everybody who saw the fight and the cursing and the imprecation that is the curse under an oath, they see it. They bring him to Moses. This goes straight up to the top of the flagpole. And his mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward. That means jail. Do you know jail is a good thing? Apparently in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, they put you in jail for the sins of your mouth. Do you see how far we have fallen from a holy standard? We'd all be in prison. <laughs> and our excuse would be, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I didn't know better. We can't say that. We're mature. We've been discipled. They put him in the ward that the mind of the Lord might be showed them, and the Lord spoke unto Moses. Now, look, think about this. All he did was they got in a fight, and he said, I swear to God I didn't do it, and if I did, may I die the death. Or, get off me. I curse you in the name of the Lord. That's the only thing. That's the only two ways to interpret that passage. He blasphemed and cursed. They put him in prison so that they can figure out what God wants to do, and God Almighty, who showed up on the Mount of Sinai to talk to Moses, shows up again to talk to Moses about this man who sinned with his mouth. That's a serious deal. God isn't like, ah, you know, these people with their mouth, they just talk too much. God shows up because they realize this is a serious issue. And if we don't set the standard now, where will the nation be eventually? 
The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed outside the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Death penalty. So he makes a curse. He blasphemes the name of the Lord, and everybody that heard it has to be a witness against him, and they're the ones that get to kill him. Now, I think this would help our gossips today. Because they sure do like spreading diarrhea. But, okay, now that you've told the the story there, sweetie, what do you want to do about it? Because under the Old Testament, and we're very ignorant of it because we're too busy trying to live our best Friday ever, grace, 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 We don't even know what the law of God says anymore. Under the Old Testament, you were obligated to testify in capital crime cases. And once you did, you were a part of the executionary group. So think about the obligation to hold sin in check. Now, thank God we are under grace. And we don't stone people for lying or breaking their promises or not showing up for toddlers or evangelism, or whatever their obligation was, leaving the rest of the church high and dry. But man, if you're under Moses' dispensation, we'd have perfect attendance. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curse his God shall bear his sin. So what does it mean to curse God? Because every one of us in here has done it. You complain to him about what he's done. You shake your fist at him like he's to blame. Why, God? Why? Why did you do this? To which the Lord would say, who told you I did this? You know, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says, every sin shall be forgiven except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, he had just been accused of casting out demons by demon power when it was really the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus equates blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to laying blame on Satan for the work of the Holy Spirit, and we often lay the blame of Satan on God Almighty. Both are blasphemous. When you're not giving credit where credit is due, like just so you know, I'm a Pentecostal, it is technically blasphemous when you say my speaking in tongues is a demon. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, and you want to say I have a demon. Yeah, that's blasphemous. Now, I'm not saying you're going to hell. I do think your intellect is diminished, and you're an ignoramus when it comes to a lot of things doctrinally. But now, on the other hand, we may not call tongues of the devil, but we have all been mad at God and accused him. Now, think about that. We begin to make accusation, not just against the brethren like a gossip, but we make accusation against God, and we blame him. Why'd you let my mama die? Why, why God? Why am I so rejected? Why do you let people reject me? Why'd you do this, God? Why'd you do that, God? And you and I got to be very careful because that becomes blasphemous. Why don't we point our finger at the enemy? Why don't we get in the mirror and point the finger at us for our incompetence, our laziness, our immaturity, our emotional instability, that little trigger, the little trigger sweatshirt we wear. Look at yourself. Look at how much you trigger yourself. God says here, whosoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Uh, We're still not free to blaspheme the Holy Spirit or blaspheme our God. But when you're emotional, you'll do it anytime things get a little rough. What we ought to say is, oh, God, live forever. Oh, God, I trust you. Oh, Lord, I don't understand everything. I don't get it. But you are good. Well, we should just like go back to the test and pass it. Say everything God says. That way we're safe. God, you are good. God, you are merciful. God, you are, your mercies endure forever. God, your promises are yes and amen. God, you're a righteous judge. God, there's no evil in you, no shadow of turning. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, I don't understand what just happened, but I would not be so stupid or blasphemous to curse you because I'm an emotional twit who's just been triggered. The funny thing about people who are addicted to their triggers, when you're somewhat spiritual, it's easy to walk up to them and like on an elevator, just run your thumb down every one of them. 
and let's watch you go to the top. Why can you be triggered? When you have a strong walk with God, triggers are dealt with. Because you walk with God. Amen. I do find it funny, back on the triggering thing now, we can lob a racial slur if folks are be triggered. You know, we're making up new racial slurs now. We're digging up ones that nobody's heard of in 150 years because the word comes back around in vernacular, like, oh, they're racist because they use this term. But if I say Jesus, nobody's triggered. The Holy One of Israel. You know, the Jews are so triggered by the Word of God, the name of God, they won't even write the thing in their blogs or in their books. Even Yahweh is an abbreviation because they wouldn't write the whole name out. They had such reverence. They were so triggered by that name. And the scribes, before they'd write the name in transcribing the scriptures, would go and take a ceremonial bath, put on a fresh robe just to come and write Y-H-W-H, omitting the vowels. Yahweh becomes Jehovah, but Yahweh's more Hebrew than Jehovah is. And then they go back and put on their other garments before they continued. How, what did God, we could be triggered like that instead of triggered by perverse cultures, social justice causes, and social media activism? It's all a condition of the heart. It's what we've been trained. So when you and I curse God, it's because we've been taught to. We were taught to let our emotions run wild. And whatever we say is okay because I've been triggered and I hurt. And God understands in the moment. He understands you don't know him. Because his word's very clear. Whoever curses his God, let him die his death. Let him bear his own sin. I want you and I to know God is not to blame for any calamity, any shortcoming, any sickness, any disease, any hurt, any harm in our life. God is a good God. God is a preserver. God is a defender. God is a protector. God wants to lead us. And guys, what we ought to say is, Lord, how come I wasn't led by your spirit? Lord, where was I? Yeah, I know you were speaking to me. Lord, where did I let the wolf in? Lord, where did I let the hedge collapse? Where did I let the little fox in? Lord, where did I fail? How come we don't ever blame ourselves? Why don't we curse ourselves? Why do we always point our finger like we're greater than God? God, why? Yeah, you shake your little pathetic fist at him. <laughs> And remember, the Lord says, I cast out demons with the finger of God. And we want to shake our fist at him. Verse 16, he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all that is, is swearing to God and then not bringing it to pass. Invoking his name and then not living up to his character. That's why sometimes I get on a little holy terror preaching and I say, Call yourself born again, but maybe don't call yourself a Christian because you're not Christ-like yet. Say, I'm learning to be a Christian. I'm learning to be Christ-like because just because you go to church and got saved once doesn't mean you are Christ-like. Because to say I'm Christ-like and then not to live like it, that's tantamount to invoking his name in vain. Now, we're all going to fall short. I get it. Christians aren't perfect. We're just saved, but we ought to be getting better in our Christian walk. And all the congregation shall, surely, shall certainly stone him as well the stranger as he that is born in the land, which, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he she, uh, shall be put to death. And any that killeth any man, he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. So blaspheming and murder are equal in the eyes of God. So that says the congregation should do it. So what if we, kind of in vain with keeping our word, and I'm not going to do this, but what if when folks started breaking their promises to the local house, that's because that's where we're going to know it, we start calling you out publicly. How about, like, I'm sure somebody this morning just skipped church and didn't tell anybody, and therefore some position in the back was left vacant. So everybody has to scramble to fill that position, which bumps everything down the line. All of you work in the back, so you get that. What if tonight that person's back and we call them out? Or you skip Sunday or Wednesday night. Don't even tell anybody. Don't even show up. Just like, no, I just have had a bad case of Wednesday afternoon. I didn't read my best Friday ever yet. So I thought I'd just stay at home and, you know, get some DoorDash. And then Sunday morning we say, hey, Brother Brett, skip Wednesday night. Left a big hole in the back. 
And uh, folks had to scramble. Somebody was really believing God for an answer, had to pull them out of service because Brother Brett wanted some DoorDash. He was having a bad day, of bad case of the Wednesdays. Hadn't read his best Wednesday ever yet. So uh, Brother Brett, what do you have to say other than I'm sorry, please forgive me, I repent? And if we were to be biblical, everybody that was affected by his lie would have opportunity to exact an apology. Everybody that got bumped because he didn't show up, didn't tell anybody, just broke his word. Now, I get it. Kids get sick. You get sick. You get tied up. I'm not going to be able to make it back. I'm in Memphis for work, or I got tied up in Mount Juliet. Traffic's bad. I'm just, I get it. That's acceptable. At least you called and said, please help me. Thank God we're under grace, but that doesn't exempt us from responsibility. So how about when you don't show up next time and I get wind of it, we just kind of put you on a board. <laughs> Helps ministers that lied to us in the month of December. How many months would I have to do that before that junk would dry up real quick? But why would I have to do it when you're supposed to have the Holy Spirit and a conviction and a, a willingness to love God? Love worketh no ill will against his neighbor. Love would at least say, you know what? I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. How come? Well, I, it's kind of personal. It's kind of private. I really just don't feel like coming. But at least give us a call so we can be prepared and we're not tested in how much we really do love you. <laughs> Amen. Psalm 15, two more verses. We're going to wrap this up. I'm not, I was going to go into the doctrine of blessing and cursing. It's not going to fit. Psalm 15, then we're going to jump to uh, Philippians, and then we'll be done. You learning anything this morning? Amen. This is a doctrine we need to hear over and over again. This, the summary of it is just keep your word, even if it hurts, which means we're going to have to learn to keep track of our word because we want to please everybody. There's nothing wrong with that in balance. We want to help people. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we start making promises and we stop, start breaking all of them, and one by one, like a domino, every commitment we make is broken, we're going to have no value to our name, no value to our word. We're going to go to prayer. We're not going to have any traction in prayer, and it's going to hurt us spiritually. So we got to reverse it, dry up our overcommitments, and work to bring our word to pass. So... Psalm 15, we looked at last week, verse 1, Lord, who shall abide in, the tab in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Verse 4, the last part, he that swears to his own hurt and changes not. He that gives his word and doesn't break it, even if it hurts him. He that commits, he that gives his word and bends over backwards to make it come to pass. He that gives his word to one meeting and has a better one come up, but keeps his first commitment. Years ago now, seven or eight years ago, I had committed to go preach for somebody, was excited to go preach for somebody, and Dr. Barclay called me up and says, you want to go to Australia with me? Yes. Yes. What are the dates? In my preaching engagement. And it, I was so torn because I think I could have called and gotten an exemption from my friend, but I was torn. And so I called Dr. Barclay. I said, sir, I've got a preaching engagement. He said, stay, preach for him. He could use your help anyway. He said, I'm always going somewhere. I'll invite you next time. I can't say I fully don't regret that still, because <laughs> he's not been back as far as I know to Australia since. But I kept my word to my friend even though I don't know how effective I was preaching. I received an offering. The trip to Australia would have probably cost me no less than five or six grand. So one of them brought money into my home. The other one would have taken money out of my home, but I would have probably still rather have gone on a mission trip with my pastor just to be around him, just to carry his bags. But I had already given my word. That's a big example, but the little ones are just as important. I said last week, let your kids help remind you of your word. Your kids will show you what a liar you are. Daddy, you said. Daddy, you said. Mommy, you said. And when they do, say, you're right, and stop what you can in the moment to make it come to pass. 
Daddy, you said we throw the football. You're right, but it's midnight and blowing snow. Get the ball. We'll throw it across the dining room once. I'll keep my word. You'll go to bed. And I'm not even kidding. Do it to keep your word. Daddy, you said we could play. You're right. It's late. Go, go, go get those G.I. Joes out. Let's play real quick. One little skirmish real quick on the pillows. Then you got to go to bed. But we have to keep our word. He that swears to his own hurt and changes not. Now, last verse, Philippians chapter one. We made this kind of jab at the Middle Tennessee mindset last week that rednecks and poverty begin things but never finish them. Many a frustrated wife has looked around what should be a lovely estate to see half-completed projects. Now, men, hear me very clearly. Women love things properly, decently, and in order. They want to nest. Now, if your wife doesn't want to nest with everything properly in order, you married the wrong woman because she's overridden something God put in women. You don't marry a messy woman. God help you if you do. So many a woman has complained, even to me, my husband doesn't finish what he starts. So this is me helping you, ladies. Men, finish what you start. Finish the projects. Don't move on to the next project till you finish the last project. Don't start in the living room till you finish the kitchen. Don't start the kitchen till you finish the dining room. Don't start the dining room till you finish the garage. Don't buy another car to work on till you finish the last car you were working on. I mean, we, this is not Sanford and Son. You're not supposed to live like a junk heap. All right. So I guess if you're like 45 and under, you don't know Sanford and Son. <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies. That has a universal appeal, right? One's black, one's white, and they're both poor. Got junk all around them. It's racially divided. I think we're equal. There's some equality for you. Put that on your trigger list. <laughs> Finish what you start. What book you're reading. What project you're starting washing your dishes. I mean, finish what you start. Philippians 1, last verse, or last verse, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will procrastinate it and postpone it till he starts 19 other projects that are more interesting and require cooler tools and toys to complete. Are we supposed to be like Jesus? And we should be confident of this one thing, that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it. Uh, I think NASB says complete or NLT says complete it. We'll work it till it is completed at the day of the Lord Jesus. Even Jesus Christ keeps his word to us. If we'll yield to him, he'll finish what he started. We need to finish what we start. That's part of keeping your word. Finish what you start. Think about any unleft project, undone project in your home. See if you can get it done by the end of the year. This is just a little personal assignment here, a little pastoral thing, not of thus says the Lord. I'm thinking about, I think I got a model airplane I didn't ever finish. I need to go finish that. There's a couple books I need to go finish, even though I don't want to. I have started them. But by finishing what you start, sin excluded, you will build momentum and faith and quality. And you'll build a confidence in your life that says, you know what? If they give it to me, I'll finish it. If I give my word, I know I'll finish it because I'm going to be like God who hastens his word to diligently perform it. I'm going to watch after my word to my kids, to my wife, to my husband, to my church, to my elders, to my pastor, to my boss, to my friends. I'm going to keep my word. That's the doctrine of confession. If you don't intend to do it, don't say it. That's pretty simple. If you don't intend to do it, don't say it. But at some point, you've got to give your word somewhere. Otherwise, you get no verbal credit. You've got to begin to commit and bring it to pass. We had an encounter this weekend. I told my kids, get in there or I'm going to wear your bum out. And uh, a child present said, oh, Spankings. I said, you don't get spanked? They said, no. I said, what happens in your life? They said, well, mom counts to three and then takes my phone away. Which means you didn't mean anything at one or two. So one, you're a liar. Two, you're a liar. Three, you're a liar. Now give me your phone. So three times you're a liar before any discipline is exacted. 
When it comes to disciplining your children, keep your word. If you say you're going to spank them, spank them. If you're going to take something away, take something away. Let your children know if you say you're going to spank them, you mean it. And if you commit, say, sweetie, I'm sorry. I said I'm going to spank you. I got to spank you. You can always pull the spank, swat them softly, because at least they're keeping your word. But we got to make sure we don't teach our children to what degree we're liars. Our kids learn to relate to God as they related to us. And we have to make sure we relate to them as God relates to us. So we keep our word. We extend mercy. When, they, when we make promises to them, good and bad, we got to keep them. God makes promises to us, good and bad. Behold, I set before you blessing and cursing. Both are promises of God. That's word of faith doctrine. You can have both. You can receive both because they're both promises and God keeps his word. We've got to learn to do the same. Amen. Amen.